This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Due to the graphic nature and descriptions of this mystery, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, torture, and strong language that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Robert Lane, an employee of the Kansas City Water Department, was driving his car late one night in 1935. From the side of the road, he was hailed by a mysterious man who appeared to be running for his life. Lane opted for the friendly choice and offered the strange man a ride. After a short, quiet trip, the man thanked Lane for his kindness and found a cab to take him the rest of the way to his unknown destination. Four days later, word spread across Kansas City that a public viewing was being held to identify a dead body. A man had been murdered in room 1046 of the hotel president. With morbid curiosity, Lane attended the event. Lane waited his turn to see the corpse and was stunned to find the mysterious man from a few nights prior laid out in the casket before him. Despite Lane's insistence that he knew the man, that he had given him a ride, the case faded into unsettled obscurity. 83 years after the events in room 1046, the mystery remains in the annals of unexplained history. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our first episode on the mystery of room 1046, where an unknown man was brutally tortured and murdered late one night in his hotel room. Decades later, we still aren't sure who he was or why he was killed. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast. 
on Twitter at Parcast Network and at Parcast.com. Shortly after the new year, on Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935, a man entered the lobby of the hotel president at about 1.20 p.m. The hotel president, built and established in 1926, had become a fixture of downtown Kansas City. A red brick facade led into a decadent lobby, complete with chandelier and lounge, which kept guests and visitors comfortable. It wasn't the interior decorating which drew stares that day, but the new guest. He was memorable for several reasons. Hotel staff mentioned a thick scar that ran along the left side of his head. Others noted that the ear on the same side suffered from what is colloquially referred to as cauliflower ear. Cauliflower ear occurs when an injury to the ear isn't properly treated and swells up in response. A permanent condition without plastic surgery, common causes often involve sports like wrestling and boxing. While they could vividly describe the man's ear and head, none of the hotel staff could seem to guess the man's age. One person thought he looked somewhere between 20 and 25, while another put his age closer to 35. The man checked in and signed the hotel register as Roland T. Owen after which he gave Los Angeles as his home address. He went on to complain about the previous night. He had stayed at the Mulebach Hotel, but was sour that they had charged him $5, the equivalent of $80 today. Not only had the price been outrageous, but they weren't willing to accommodate his request for a specific room. The bellboy at the time, Randolph Probst, went to take Owen's luggage, but discovered he had none. Determined to do his job, Probst escorted Owen to the 10th floor and led him into room 1046. Once in the room, Owen took what appeared to be his only three possessions from his pocket and laid them out in the bathroom. With him, he had brought a comb, a hairbrush, and some toothpaste. It was certainly strange, but Probst wasn't paid to ask questions. Instead, he informed Owen that his room door could be locked from both the inside and outside, and that only the guest and a hotel manager had a passkey to their respective room. For some reason, Owen was keen to leave and followed Probst out. Probst quickly realized they had left the door unlocked. He borrowed Owen's key to make sure the door was securely shut. After locking the door, Probst returned the key to Owen who then left the hotel for an undetermined period of time. Later that same day, between 1.30 and 3 p.m., Maid Mary Soapdick arrived at room 1046 to begin cleaning. Owen ushered her in to begin her duties while he sat quietly on the bed. As she bustled about, Mary made several key observations. The blinds to the room were drawn tightly, with only the dim glow of a weak desk lamp lighting the space. To her recollection, Owen seemed nervous and jumpy. Mary cleaned while Owen went into the bathroom and brushed his hair. Before he left the room, he asked that Mary leave the door unlocked as he was expecting a friend to arrive any minute. As Mary finished her work, she realized that she would have to return with clean towels and so made a mental note to come back. It wasn't until 4 p.m. that Mary returned with the load of fresh towels for room 1046. 
She went to unlock the door, but found it already open. Inside, Owen laid across the bed where he slept fully clothed. Mary delivered the towels, but before she left, she noticed the light from the hallway illuminating a small note on the desk. Unable to withstand her curiosity, she took a peek. The note read, quote, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. End quote. This mysterious Don could have been a friend, as Owen claimed, but he just as easily could have been a colleague or business partner, maybe even a relative. Whoever he was, this wouldn't be the last sign of him. The next day, Thursday, January 3, 1935, Mary Soptic arrived at 10.30 a.m. to begin her normal rounds. When she arrived at room 1046, she found the door locked from the outside and assumed Owen had left for the day. Using a passkey to enter, Mary was shocked to find Owen still sitting inside the darkened room. But what choice did he have? He had been locked in. It was as if someone else had taken the key and locked the door as they left. Not willing to pry, Mary went about her tasks when the phone rang. The conversation between Owen and Don was brief and slightly terse. Quote, no, Don, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just had breakfast, end quote. Owen then repeated himself. No, I am not hungry. He hung up and struck up a conversation with Mary. The questions were innocuous and simple. Owen asked whether Mary was in charge of the entire 10th floor and if the hotel president was a residential hotel in which one might live. That's when he brought up a familiar name, the Mulebach Hotel. Owen seemed angered by his own mention of the other establishment. Just as he had grumbled at check-in, Owen went on to say how they had overcharged him for a room not dissimilar to the one in which he now stayed. Sensing his rising ire, Mary quickly gathered the soiled towels and promised to return with clean ones that afternoon. She didn't know it yet, but this was the last time that Mary would ever directly interact with the occupant of room 1046. Like the previous day, Mary returned to Owen's room around 4 p.m. with fresh towels. Instead of knocking, she paused at the door. Two voices were in the midst of a heated discussion. Not sure if she should interrupt, Mary knocked tentatively. A voice she hadn't heard before answered with a gruff, Who is it? Mary identified herself and explained that she had clean towels. The same voice came again with a curt, We don't need any. Mary knew that wasn't the case, but she also knew better than to argue and instead left to complete her shift. It's likely that the other voice was Don. The subject of their discussion, whatever it was, was clearly a point of contention. And this argument kicked off the chain of events that eventually led to Owen's death. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries. 
For some people, Thursday, January 3, 1935, was a relatively normal day. For Jean Owen, a 30-year-old woman from Lee's Summit, Missouri, a day trip to the city was a common occurrence. Despite sharing a surname, Jean was never found to be related to Roland T. Owen. Jean's boyfriend, Joe Reinhardt, worked at the Midland Flower Shop, and she would often find an excuse to visit him. However, on that particular day, Jean began to feel ill after a few hours of shopping. She decided it was too far to drive home while she was sick, so she set off to choose a hotel. At 6 p.m., Jean arrived at the hotel president, and by 6.30 p.m. had registered as a guest. Her room number was 1048, directly next to Owen's. After she settled into her room, Jean called her boyfriend Joe around 6.50 p.m. to inform him of where she was and asked for him to come by and visit. Sometime around 9 p.m., Joe stopped by room 1048 to visit Jean for a few hours. It's not surprising that when Joe was questioned later, that he didn't recall any strange activity coming from room 1046. After all, Owen wasn't there. Across the city, Robert Lane, an employee of the Kansas City Water Department, was driving home from a long day at work. You might remember that name from our opening this week. It was just before 11 p.m., when Robert noticed a man running along the road wearing little more than an undershirt, slacks, and shoes. His choice of clothing was more than a little strange as it was a cold night. The man hailed Robert as though he were a cab, but since it was late and the man seemed distressed, Robert stopped. That man was none other than Roland T. Owen. According to Robert, he seemed manic, confused even, and admitted to thinking the car was a taxi. Robert offered to give the man a ride into town to find a cab, and they set off. Robert distinctly remembers Owen's words when he first entered the car. Looking out the window over his shoulder, Owen whispered, quote, I'll kill that man tomorrow, end quote. The exact wording of the strong language used has been lost to retellings of the story, but the sentiment is clear. As Owen mumbled to himself, Robert peeked into the back seat where Owen was shifting from side to side. On his arm, a deep scratch slowly dripped blood. Owen was doing his best to be inconspicuous and catch the blood in his hands. A fight had transpired and Owen was out for blood. But before Robert could learn anything more from his mysterious passenger, he leapt out of the car at the corner of 12th and Troost and dashed off. Today, 12th and Troost is set between a Greyhound bus station and an industrial park. But even in 1935, it would have been a 20 or 30 minute hike to the hotel president. Robert watched befuddled as Owen beelined to an empty cab parked in front of a nearby restaurant. Once there, he opened the driver's side door, honked the horn, and hopped into the back. A cabbie dashed from the diner and they drove off in a flurry. Back at the hotel president, Jean Owen was unable to sleep. Her boyfriend had left around 11 p.m. and now, in the early hours of Friday, January 4th, the sounds of raised voices were keeping her up. Stated to police later, 
Jean had considered calling the front desk to complain, but decided to avoid causing a fuss. According to Charles Blocker, the elevator operator who worked the graveyard shift, he had been busy ferrying guests up to the 10th floor to a huge party in room 1055, only five or so doors down from Jean. At this point, it's unclear if Jean was hearing the sounds of revelry or of a heated argument next door. Now, as we follow the elevator operator, the timeline and account of events and people grows particularly detailed and specific. Just imagine, Blocker had to stand in a metal box as it traveled from one floor to the next between long stretches of boredom. The only thing to break the tedium was the occasional guest whom Blocker would note details about as he took them from floor to floor. In 1935, being attentive was a must. If he wanted to receive a tip for his work, Blocker would often have to remember faces and engage customers in conversation. One such guest that evening was particularly memorable, a woman. Blocker described her as short and slight in stature and that her black Hudson seal coat complemented her dark hair. The woman in black asked to be delivered to the 10th floor and inquired about the whereabouts of room 1026. Only a single digit off from room 1046, meaning if we substituted the two for a four, we would have 1046. That's when Blocker remembered this woman from past shifts. He'd seen her frequent the hotel before in order to visit the rooms of various men at all hours of the day and night. He described her as a commercial woman. The woman exited the elevator on the 10th floor, but approximately five minutes later, the elevator was summoned back again. When the doors opened, the woman in black stood before Blocker and admitted to having the wrong number. No one seemed to be in room 1026. But again, 1026 is just one digit off from 1046, Owen's room number. Perhaps that was where she meant to go after all. The woman in black guessed that maybe since there was a light on in room 1024, it might be the right room, and hurried off, leaving Blocker to his monotonous task. About 30 or 40 minutes later, Blocker got the signal to return to the 10th floor where the woman in black was waiting. She rode the elevator down to the lobby and promptly left the hotel. An hour later, the woman in black returned, but this time she had brought company. Blocker described her companion as a man, dressed all in brown, who was almost identical to the woman in both height and stature. Perhaps they were relatives. The couple asked to be taken to the ninth floor, where they got out and vanished for an uncertain amount of time. But Blocker distinctly remembered that it wasn't until 4.15 a.m., that the elevator would again make a stop on the ninth floor to first pick up the woman in black and then the man in brown, 15 minutes apart. Maybe to ease the suspicion of his comings and goings, the man in brown made up an excuse about his inability to sleep and that he would need a walk to settle his nerves. An unnecessary lie, as hotel staff knew he wasn't a guest. That was the last time anyone at the hotel president ever saw the man in brown again. Both the woman in black and the man in brown had appeared at the time only mildly suspicious to Blocker. However, 
They would later make him question his own memory of the night's goings-on when the timeline of events became clear. The hotel's night clerk, James Haddon, corroborated Blocker's story. By the early hours of Friday, January 4th, no one at the hotel had heard from Owen. The last time anyone would claim to have seen him was Robert Lane sometime around 11 p.m. the previous day. At a little after 7 a.m. on the 4th, events took a turn for the strange. Della Ferguson, a telephone operator, had just started her shift when she noticed something strange. Casting a glance across the entire hotel switchboard, she noticed a little red light blinking. That light indicated that the individual in room 1046 had left their phone off the hook. Della checked with her co-worker before she left to confirm no calls had come in or out of the room all night. So why was it off the hook? After 10 minutes or so, the phone was still off the hook and a call hadn't been placed. Efficient and decisive, Della requested that the bell service send a bellboy to room 1046 and politely asked the occupant to return the phone to the hook. Randolph Propes, the same bellboy who had helped Owen to his room when he checked in a few days prior, answered Della's request. On the doorknob of room 1046, a do not disturb sign hung as a polite warning to any and all visitors. Propes ignored it and knocked loudly. No response. Propst waited and knocked again. This time, a deep voice entreated Propst to come in. Propst assumed the voice belonged to Owen and tried the door handle. Propst found that the door had been locked from the outside. He knocked again, and the muffled voice suggested that he turn on the lights. This moment should have elicited suspicion, as there was no logical reason the door should be locked from the outside with the guests still within. But at this point, frustrated and convinced that the occupant must be drunk, Probst yelled through the door that Owen should, quote, put the phone back on the hook, and left to explain the situation to Della. At some time around 8.30 a.m., Della noticed that the phone for room 1046 was still off the hook. This time, she sent another bellboy, Harold Pike, with a passkey to let himself in should there be any difficulty. When Pike arrived at room 1046, the door was still locked tight. So Pike knocked and politely announced his presence before letting himself into the room. The room was completely dark. The scant light from the hallway barely illuminated enough for Pike to see what he was doing. As Pike fumbled his way towards the bed, he noticed that Owen was sprawled across it, completely naked. To Pike, this only confirmed that Owen was indeed still drunk from the night before. Finally, next to the bed, Pike found that the telephone had been knocked over with the phone now down on the floor. Careful not to make a sound, Pike put the phone back where it belonged and crept from the room. Making sure to lock the door behind him, it was a little after 8.30 a.m. when Pike returned to the lobby and recounted what he had seen to a supervisor. To Pike and Probst, Owen was just another careless drunk sleeping the morning away. About two hours later, sometime between 10.30 and 10.45 a.m., a second hotel operator noticed that the light for room 1046 
again indicated that the phone was off the hook. She reported to the head operator, Betty Cole. Cole found Randolph Probst and sent him again to room 1046 to secure the phone. The phone continuously falling off the hook could mean several things. Either Owen was careless and knocked it over, or someone didn't want him to make or receive any calls. Around 11 a.m., a disgruntled Probst headed up to the 10th floor and stood again in front of room 1046. Probst ignored the Do Not Disturb sign, knocked three times as loudly as he could. When no response was forthcoming, he unlocked the door with the hotel passkey. The door swung open and Probst squinted into the darkened room. As his eyes adjusted, he entered. So intent was Probst on his mission, he nearly missed the crouched shape at his feet. It was Roland T. Owen. He couldn't have been more than a few feet from the door. On all fours, he cradled his head in his hands. Probst bent down to help him to his feet. That's when he noticed Owen's bloody head and hands. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Now our story continues. Around 11 a.m. on Friday, January 4, 1935, bellhop Randolph Probst discovered hotel guest Roland T. Owen curled against the door, bleeding from his head and his hands. Now in a panic, perhaps not knowing what else to do, Probst hung up the phone receiver. His mission completed, he hurried to turn on a light and took in the scene. The entire room was bathed in blood. What the other bellboy, Harold Pike, had thought of as dark shadows on the bed turned out to be a congealed pool of the red liquid. Ribbons of blood were splashed across the walls. The space was more butcher shop than hotel room. And so Randolph Probst did what many of us would have done in that situation. He shouted for help. When none came, he ran. Probst found the hotel's assistant manager, M.S. Weaver, and related what he had found. Now, as events speed up, the timeline becomes muddled by various sources. Weaver rushed to call the authorities while, in a spur-of-the-moment decision, Probst hurried back to room 1046. It is unclear whether he hoped to save Owen or simply sit with him, but off he went. When he reached the door, it seemed to be blocked from the other side. Owen had collapsed, his body holding the door shut. Just able to edge into the room, Probst stayed with the unconscious Owen until police arrived some 10 or 20 minutes later. Detectives Ira Johnson, William Eldridge, and Sergeant Frank Howland soon appeared to examine the crime scene and victim. They were informed that a doctor was on the way. Before we really dig into the events as they played out in that room, it's important to understand the investigative procedures of the 1930s. Up until a few years prior, dust had been a huge factor in criminal cases. Certain criminologists believed that an analysis of the dirt and dust in a room spoke volumes as to what had actually happened. Some even claimed an investigator could become a sort of Sherlock Holmes and determine the details about the case 
otherwise invisible to the naked eye. By 1935, the idea that trace elements such as dust mattered in criminal investigations opened the door for the analysis of hair, fibers, blood spatter, and even weapon ballistics. Unfortunately, this field of science had just begun to gain popularity, and the detectives in the mystery of room 1046 had no such specialized training or equipment. As the officers examined an unresponsive but alive Owen, they found that he had been restrained around the neck with some sort of cord. The restraint had come loose, but left a deep mottled bruise. It appeared as though some sort of manual strangulation had been applied as well. Owen's wrists and ankles were still held fast, lashed together by the same material that had been around his neck. On his chest, three distinct knife wounds had bled down his chest to dry in a hardened mess. The detectives immediately came to a terrifying conclusion. Owen had been tortured. The detectives, not sure how to handle a barely breathing Owen, brought him into the bathroom where they successfully revived him. Unfortunately, detectives were not trained in medical procedures and victims often had to wait for a professional to arrive on scene before any real medical help was provided. Owen's case was no different. Sometime around 11.30 a.m., a Dr. Flanders appeared to assess the situation. Flanders found a now-conscious Owen in the bathroom and cut the cords around his wrists. Although this appears to be a common-sense action, detectives typically left such decisions up to doctors rather than disturbing the crime scene themselves. In a daze, Owen used his now-freed hands to turn on the spigot in the bathtub. Dr. Flanders quickly turned it off and endeavored to draw Owen's focus to better examine him. Flanders found that Owen's skull had been fractured on the right side, where it appeared as though he had been struck multiple times. But now that Owen was awake and potentially coherent, detectives leapt at the opportunity to speak to him. Leaning over, Detective Johnson asked if Owen remembered who had been in the room with him. Semi-conscious, hardly able to move, Owen barked, Nobody. Johnson tried again. How had Owen gotten hurt? I fell against the bathtub, he responded weakly. Had he tried to commit suicide? No, came the mumbled answer. Dr. Flanders called off the questions as Owen slipped into a deep comatose state and was rushed off to the hospital. With his patient now on his way to be treated at a nearby hospital, Dr. Flanders was able to analyze the situation further. We typically associate detectives with the ability to analyze a crime scene. However, in 1935, it was more likely that a doctor who was called to a crime scene had more basic forensic training than any of the responding authorities. Sometime between 1 and 2 p.m. that afternoon, Dr. Flanders concluded his examination of the scene. He noted that dried blood on the walls had likely occurred when Owen had been stabbed in the torso. This meant the crime had perhaps been committed some seven hours earlier, likely between the hours of 3 and 4 a.m. This would mean that when Probst first came to the room at 7 a.m., Owen was well on his way to bleeding out. After Dr. Flanders finished his own examination of the room, 
The detectives continued to case the scene. Now that Owen was out of the room and wasn't demanding their immediate attention, the officers quickly ascertained that all of Owen's clothes had been removed from the scene. Investigators dug through the drawers and under the bed, but they were unable to find any clothes. Even Owen's socks and shoes had been taken. Another quick once-over of the scene revealed a few strange pieces of evidence. The only remnant of clothing was the small, frayed label of a necktie. Even more bizarre, the toiletries supplied by the hotel were gone as well. The soap, shampoo, and towels had vanished. Whomever had been in the room with Owen had made sure to take almost everything they could lay their hands on. And no weapon or sharp object that might have been used to injure Owen was found on the scene. What they found instead was a safety pin, a hairpin, an unlit cigarette, and an unused bottle of dilute sulfuric acid. Each item offered a new theory. The hairpin suggested that perhaps a woman had visited recently, while the bottle of sulfuric acid might have been brought as an instrument of torture, eventually thought too barbaric to be used. They also found two glasses for water in the bathroom. One was in its usual spot on a shelf above the sink, while the other had fallen into the sink and was missing a large, jagged piece. It begs the question, why would the culprit, or culprits, have taken a sliver of glass unless it was some sort of evidence? Well, there's always the chance that it had been broken by accident or even in a struggle, but glass would have made for an inefficient weapon. It's too easy to cut yourself on it. Efficient or not, glass can still cut deep when applied with enough force. Which makes it entirely possible that the piece of broken glass may have been the weapon the authorities were looking for but never found. However, the police chose to fix their attention elsewhere. Working well into the afternoon and evening of the 4th, the detectives lifted prints from the top of the telephone stand. Four small fingerprints led detectives to believe they were searching for a woman. The evening papers, the Kansas City Star and Kansas City Journal Post, both carried the noteworthy story on page one. In a section of the story from the Journal Post, Detective Johnson said, quote, there is no doubt that someone else is mixed up in this, end quote. The police were wary of sensationalizing the story more than they had to, but also knew that with the few leads they had, they were going to need all the help they could get. Jean Owen from room 1048 was held for questioning. That line of questioning proved fruitless when her boyfriend, Joe Reinert, verified her account of their evening together at the hotel president. Sometime after midnight on January 5, 1935, the man calling himself Roland T. Owen succumbed to his injuries and died in his coma. With both the victim and only witness to the crime in room 1046 now dead, authorities were left on their own to begin piecing together an increasingly complex puzzle. The already irregular case grew more complicated after an unnamed city coroner completed his autopsy on Owen's injuries. They were able to confirm Dr. Flanders' initial observations that Owen's skull had been fractured, but noted that the head injuries may have occurred sometime prior to the torture. Similarly, 
The stab wounds in Owen's chest had all come from the same implement, but one of the larger lacerations cut through deeper than the rest and had punctured his right lung. With the skull fractures, blood loss, pierced lung and apparent strangulation attempt, it was a small marvel that Owen had lasted long enough to speak, let alone wake up at all. Ultimately, the cause of death was likely a combination of the trauma to the head that had caused Owen's coma and the traumatic pneumothorax, which was the partial or complete collapse of Owen's right lung. After the two front page articles containing details of Owen's death had been distributed, a curious woman called the hotel president and asked for a description of the dead man. The hotel staff shared a few key characteristics, his cauliflower ear and deep scar. The woman on the phone claimed that the victim was a man she had seen who lived in Clinton, Missouri. This clued detectives into the possibility that Roland T. Owen might have been an alias and not the victim's actual name. Over the weekend, detectives followed up on their suspicions. With the hotel register in hand, they knew that Owen had given Los Angeles as his home address and reached out to the Los Angeles Police Department to check. On Sunday, January 6, 1935, detectives sent queries to the LAPD in hopes of gaining some sort of insight. The answer from the LAPD was short and simple. No record of any Roland T. Owen existed within their files. Grasping at straws, authorities used the photo lab at the Kansas City Star to create samples of Owen's fingerprints and sent them off to the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, a precursor to the modern-day FBI. They never heard anything back. It wasn't until Monday, January 7th, that investigators publicly acknowledged that Owen had been registered under an assumed name. Instead of moving the case forward, detectives had taken two steps back. That same Sunday, authorities, at their wit's end, held a public viewing of Owen's body at the Melody McGilley Funeral Home. Different reports have the crowd size at vastly contrasting numbers. One account says 50, while another suggests that over 300 people were in attendance. One of those viewers was an employee of the Kansas City Water Department, Robert Lane. Lane went directly to the detectives and explained that Owen had been the man that had hailed him on 13th Street. To confirm his account, Lane even identified the long scratch that he had seen on Owen's arm when he had given him the ride home. Despite the compelling testimony, Detective Johnson dismissed Lane's identification of Owen's body. He explained that since hotel staff hadn't seen Owen exit or enter the hotel in the time before his death, that it couldn't have been him. Since the very early days of criminal investigations, witnesses were often considered unreliable unless multiple individuals could be found to corroborate each other's story. With leads quickly beginning to taper off, detectives followed up on a statement from Mary Sopdick the maid at Hotel President, who claimed that Owen had spoken to her about staying at the Hotel Muehlbach. At the Muehlbach, investigators found no record of a man named Roland T. Owen, but the staff recalled seeing a man that fit Owen's unique description only a few days earlier. That man complained about the steep $5 price tag and made clear his displeasure when they were unable to give him a specific room as he signed into the hotel. 
The man had also listed Los Angeles as his home address. On the hotel mule box register, the guest with a cauliflower ear and scar had written his name, Eugene K. Scott. Whether Roland T. Owen or Eugene K. Scott, the investigators were certain of one thing. They were at a complete loss as to the true identity of the man who had been tortured to death in room 1046. The mystery of the man in room 1046 is one that has caused rampant speculation for the better part of a century. From the various aliases and strange timelines to the missing evidence and colorful host of characters skulking through the night, there is a lot to cover in this case. Next week, we'll discuss the possible true identity of Roland T. Owen, disclose the identities of each potential perpetrator and their motivations, as well as consider three promising theories. Theory number one, Owen had dreams of becoming a star athlete, but when bad habits landed him in debt to the wrong people, he made a short-lived and fateful run for it. Theory number two, a love triangle, with Owen at one end turned deadly. Theory number three, an unfaithful Owen was confronted by the family members of a slighted lover in a meeting that would end his life. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Edward Hamill and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.